Um, so now we take time. If you have any unanswered questions or um, any questions what we looked at this morning, now is the time to ask. Um, and we have a microphone for posterity. And again, I will be attempting to not answer with no. Um, oh my God. Yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible. A friend of mine who listens to this, apparently Dave, Dave wasn't, well, Dave has his own ABF. Um, apparently when people say something, I'll frequently go, no, 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 that's good, yeah. And it sounds negative, even though I'm trying to, it's just a terrible habit of mine. But once I've noticed it, it just, it's hard to, I'll say no, yes, that happens, yeah. Okay, so questions, um, complaints, thoughts. Well, everyone's all nervous and shy. Oh, here we go. Not Jim. Can you expound on a little bit or talk more about... Why are you smiling? Um, Romans 1 and, and God's <laughs> desire to be acknowledged as God, His desire to be thanked, because I think that's a portion of truth that sometimes gets left out of evangelism yeah. or the gospel message. Yeah, if you guys would turn to Romans 1, uh, I really think Romans 1.18 through 3.20 is the most full um, and significant statement of God on the nature of man as we find him, not as he created him in the garden, but as he is now. And it is absolutely foundational for our thinking of how to deal and relate to people. Um, I know that frequently people wrestle with the doctrine of hell, and we imagine innocent people who who just you know if they'd heard they would have believed. Um, people who meant to do well, and Romans one shatters that picture of people. It, it truly does. Again, we tend to think of sin. If you look at, I read the. I read starting in verse 18, but jump down to the, to the end, is the list of things that we recognize as sin. Right? These are the horizontal things that affect other people. And so starting in 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Now there's a catch-all category right there. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, we look at that list, and most of those things on there, we say, okay, amen, that's wicked. That is not fundamentally what God's angry at. That is the fruit that the tree that God's angry at bears. When Paul brings his charge against mankind, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. He gets to the root of sin. The fruit of sin is that list. The evidences of corruption seen in time and space in people's lives is that list. The root is refusing to honor and acknowledge and be thankful to God, even though you know perfectly well He's there. And that, that piece is key, and I think it's key for us to grasp when we understand God's anger. It, it, he explicitly makes this clear. And I, it's, not even, it's not even that Romans 1 is saying, the evidence is there if you'd care to see. 
That would be enough, right? I mean, if, if, if the evidence was there, if you just cared to check, you could find it. That would be enough to condemn someone. Paul makes a much stronger statement than that. Don't miss it. He says, you saw the evidence, you understood the evidence, and then you willfully rejected it. That, that's what he says. Don't miss it. The wrath of God is revealed, verse 18, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them because, <clears throat> sorry, because He has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived. It's not just that God put it on display. It's not that just that God said it's there if you care to look. It's been perceived. Now, if I'm not mistaken, only people perceive things. It's been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Why are they without excuse? Because God supplied the evidence and they saw the evidence. They understood. They perceived. He makes it even more explicit if you keep going. For although they, what's that say? Knew God. Not although they could know God. Although they knew God. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they came futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and then exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. And what follows in Romans 1 is the result of that. You'll notice the pattern three times God gave them over. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. I'm sorry, God gave them up. It's DSV. I'm used to the New American Standard. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. And so the cause of this threefold giving over of God to a depraved mind, um, which the first time he gives them over, they, it, it results in sexual sin and, and homosexuality and lesbianism. And then it, it gives them over and finally ends up in all of this stuff. These are the evidences of God's judgment on the root problem. And the root problem is people seeing the evidence of God in the creation, the evidence of God around them. By the time you get to chapter 2, Paul will also point the evidence of God's law written on our hearts. We see it, we understand it, and we say, I don't want that. And we trade the truth for a lie. That is why God is angry. That is why people perish. And that is why there are no innocent people. And, and that's exactly what's going on with Jesus and the crowds. But this, this is crucial because people will not present themselves this way. People want to present themselves as though they are ethically neutral or, or to use the philosophical or epistemologically neutral. They don't have a bias when it comes to truth. They just want to know the truth and they're conducting, they're, they're testing things. And if Jesus could just render enough evidence, they'd believe in him. No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. Just, just as the people in Jesus' day didn't either. Um, see, it's easy when you've got room for cover to say things like that. But when you're face-to-face -face and you've got nowhere to go, it's, it's make or break time and you're either going to bend the knee or you're going to start speaking blasphemies and foolish things. And deep down inside, all of us prior to coming to Christ were doing the exact same thing. We are no different. We were no different than them. But that, that statement in Romans 1 is crucial to understand um, that even the nice person who's who's looked into Christianity and they're you know they're curious, but that's where they're at right now until until the Lord removes the veil, until their eyes are open, their ears unstopped. That that is God's statement on mankind. 
Um, is that where you want me to go, Jim, or is there more? Microphone. Oh, no, he doesn't have the microphone. Hold on. Hold on. Well, could you say that again on the mic tape, please? <laughs> okay, thank you. It also uh, blows up the notion of atheism. Oh, Destroys I, it. I, I am an atheist. I don't believe in atheists. But now, let me, let me clarify. You want to believe a lie long enough, you will. You want to believe a lie long enough, you tell yourself a lie long enough, you will become self-deceived. And this even says they become fools. Um, which isn't to say that when you meet an atheist, they are, at that moment, self-aware that they're lying. That, that's not the case. However, when they stand before God, God will say, you knew, and they'll say, yeah, I knew. And deep down inside, they know. Sleepless nights when they're lying awake at night, they know. And you can believe a lie long enough, just like the person who's got a problem with a substance tells himself they don't have a problem, but, it, but they know. And at moments of clarity, they know. It's the same thing. So I'm not suggesting that every atheist you meet in that moment is intentionally self-aware that they're lying to you. The good news is, as you, as you witness and share your faith, you, you don't have to argue God. They know God exists. You can just gently and lovingly point that out to them. What, I'll, what I do when I share my faith is I'll say, hey, can I just share with you what the Bible says about man and where we're at? Here, here's what Paul says, and I believe this. So here's the deal. God says... He knows that you know exist. He's told me, so I know that you know he exists. So can we just be honest and move on from there? Um, which isn't to say we don't need to offer um, answers. But usually most of the apologetics work we do in offering answers and objections is, I think, mainly gaining a hearing and just being courteous. But I've more often than not now punt when they ask me questions about things, you know, dinosaurs, or they want to ask me about Cain's wife. And they say, look, 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 there are really good answers for that stuff. People have done good work, and I'd be happy to take the time and go down that road with you. Is that truly the one thing that's stopping you from bowing your knee to Christ? Like, if I, if I satisfactorily answer that question, will you, will you repent and trust in Jesus? I've never had someone say yes. Now, if that were the case, if they're saying, look, I really want to become a Christian, I'm just stumbling over this, well, sure. But nine out of ten times, it's just a smokescreen. And they, no, okay. Then what? What's the real issue? Let's talk about that, because I, I, uh, I don't think that's really why people are are not coming. Hold on, microphone, Mr. Lample. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh is it, the light should be on. Oh, okay. They they don't like me back there. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, let's not kid ourselves that this is just, let's not make it black and white, saved, unsaved. Right. Uh, <clears throat> even the believer is to daily acknowledge the sovereignty of God and those things, that long list of nastiness mm. can be in our lives just as well yes. when we get into the habit of not acknowledging God's lordship. A amen, amen. Um, let me, yes, didn't say no, I said yes. Um, I think that exact same pattern which Paul initially uses to express um, what's going on with, with unbelievers is a principle that's true, that in order for us to embrace sin, we're going to have to suppress truth. We all know what that's like. You know, there's some movie you probably shouldn't see or some activity you probably shouldn't do, so what do you do? I'm not going to think about that. And every time your conscience nags, you say, I'm not gonna, you're suppressing the truth. 
what happens as a result? You get stupid. I mean, you know this. You've talked to people stuck in sin, and they say really stupid things like, I just read the red letters or whatever. And you're like, how did you get to that point? Or people who just have ridiculous explanations for why they're doing what they're doing, like Adam, we just got to get some fig leaves. We'll be okay. We can get through this. And But the sin makes you stupid because God gives you over. And whoever you present yourself to serve, you're a slave of the one you serve. Paul says that in Romans 6 to believers. And so, yeah, every day we wrestle with suppressing various truths. Truths that we don't like. Truths that make us uncomfortable. And so every day we need to be asking the Lord, like Psalm 19, Lord, search me and try me and show me if there's any evil way in me. Psalm 139, same question. Lord, test me and test my thoughts. And is there some area of my life that I'm holding down? Something you're trying to get my attention on that I'm just trying like, like, like gangbusters to avoid noticing. You know, and uh, so this principle of suppressing truth as the the inroads and really the root of all sin is just as much of a problem for believers. Um, we're not given over to it totally, and God will eventually fix our wagon and not let us get away with it for too too long. But absolutely, this this suppression of truth and refusal to acknowledge God in the various areas of our life is what you have to do if you want to embrace sin. You have to um, without just denying the faith. I mean, those are your options, right? Either you're just going to say, I'm done with Christianity, I'm walking away. But if you want to hold on to some area of sin in your life, you're going to have to stop thinking about and not meditate on and, and just not bring to mind certain parts of God's words so that you can make that work, right? You're going to have to do that. You want to add anything to that, Dave? Or okay. Anyone else want to... Okay, I'll go a little further with this. Oh, no, Greg. I was going to ask a question about the text, unless you wanted to go further. Let me hold the mic. Let me just say one more thing on this. Um, it looks like the series on election that we're going to do and predestination and the sovereignty of God will take place shortly after Easter. Um, that's, that's what it's looking like right now. But this notion here is huge because the whole sort of free will theology. Um, and, and like I said a week or two ago, I absolutely believe we make free, unforced choices. But the notion that yeah, in order for that to work, you've got to have people being basically good or at best neutral. So that the notion is, hey, there's all these nice people and if they just heard the gospel, some will believe, some won't believe. The picture of Romans 1 is we're looking for truth like, like thieves are looking for the police. And, and unless something fundamentally changes about that, no one's going to come. People can do whatever they want, and they're all going to go to hell because they're not going to want Jesus. And so Romans 1 says is sort of a foundational assumption because the doctrine of election and predestination does not say God is keeping people out. I'm only letting some in. Rather, he's inviting all. No one wants to come. And so then what is he going to do about that? that that's sort of the starting point on, on, on that. Does that make sense? That when we get into this, this notion of man's sinfulness and, and man's suppression of truth and, and the, the mind that we've been given over to is kind of the starting point that even though God invites all to come and no one will be turned away and anyone who wants Jesus can have him, this is what's going on. Even though we meet people every day who say they're looking for truth while they're suppressing it. Okay, Greg. When Jesus says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. I think earlier when you were teaching on that, you were saying that 
you referenced like the sons of Sceva and, and some other itinerant preachers who were um, exercising rights over demons. Is that, could you talk a little bit more about that? Is that just like when he says your sons, is that just a reference to, you know, people within the, the, the nation or could you talk a little more on that? I, yeah, your sons, Israelites, but probably more in view, the ones you recognize that you wouldn't call satanic. The ones that are on your team, your sons, you know, and then, then the son, father, the son grows up, he's like the father. That's the, we, we think of fathers and sons, we think genetics, we think CSI, but the biblical use of father and son is much more, the son becomes like the father. So if you make peace, you, you, you'll be called sons of God. You're a son, like if you behave like your father, precisely. So I think Jesus is saying the people in your group, your sons, your disciples, your people, who are they doing it by? We only have the one example, the seven sons of Sceva. We have no other example. I don't want to say too much just because next week, I think that's exactly the type of comparison he's making. If you, if, I'll sow this seed. You look at the two stories of exorcism, the strong man and the stronger man who sets up shop, contrasted with the demon who's temporarily kicked out, but there's no one in place when he comes back. And I think Jesus is absolutely just compared his ministry with any other attempt to, to reform and moralize or help that doesn't involve the stronger man taking up residence. That would include whatever the Jewish exorcists are doing. We know that David was able to um, calm Saul's spirit just by playing music. right? So I mean, music can have a spiritual effect. Maybe the demon, the evil spirit from the Lord that Saul had, maybe that evil spirit went off through the desert and dry places and and eventually came back when the song was done. We don't know. So I don't know to what effect they had. Maybe they were, maybe they were satanically powered, and it was a trick. Um, the one example Luke gives us, and since Luke is the one who mentions it, and Luke is the only one who references it, is the seven sons of Sceva, it's not very impressive. Um, but they weren't beginning. They were itinerant exorcists. This is what they did for a living. And one day they decided to give the Jesus whom Paul preaches a shot. I don't think they did that again. But... <laughs> But but they were doing this, and somehow people thought they were doing it. And Jesus' point is simply, they have your blessing. You would re- recognize that they're doing that in God's name, and they're doing ministry. And so, if you're recogn- it's, it's in other words, it's not as though your standard for, of evidence is so high. I just haven't met it yet. These pathetic people with their piddling little results meet your standard of evidence. You give them a thumbs up. You say they're doing the Lord's work, and yet you reject me. That, that's the ar- the flow of the argument, but did any any that go where you want to go? Or? Okay, okay, five minutes. Who's going to bring us home? Do it. It's silly, but hey, it's five minutes. Well, I don't know about silly. It's not overly important, probably. But okay. Beelzebul versus Beelzebub. I mean. Oh. Are they different or no, no. just different? Well, go, back, go back to First Kings, go back to first, Second Kings 1, 2. You'll see it's really two words, Baal, which means Lord, Master, or Ruler. So when they're worshiping the different Baals, that's not a particular name for a particular god. That's like a class, a category. Um, and so, yeah, go to, go to Second Kings 1, which is the first occurrence of this name. And by reading the other Gospels, it's clear this is just a, a euphemistic, rude term for demons. 
Um, just as he, Jesus will adopt their terminology, the unclean spirit coming up later, that's what the Jews would call a demon, an unclean spirit. So 1 Kings chapter 2, um, chapter 1, sorry, uh, verse 2. Now Azahiah, uh, no, Isaiah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria, king up north in Samaria, and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baal Zabub. And so you can see the two words, the hyphenation there. It's the Lord of and flies. And so I'm not sure whether Baal Zabal um, is, is that just a morphine ending. The, what you've got is an instance where the New Testament translators didn't translate the word. They just brought it over from Greek because it's a name. And so I, I don't know. You, you want to shed any insight on that, Daniel? You're... Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. Inquiring podcasters want to know. I'm guessing that it's a shift between the Hebrew and the Aramaic, the ending shift, and so often you'll get a little variation there, but it's the same word. Yeah, yeah. And so they're not even calling him Satan, they're calling him the most rude term for Satan they can come up with. So it's just the cherry on top of the slander. Anything else? Going on. Going twice. The unthinkable has happened. We'll get up two minutes early. Let's close in prayer. A two-minute closing prayer. Lord God, we uh, just thank you to be your body, to be your bride, to be your people. And we, we are just thankful for the access we have to you um, and to your word. And Lord, we just pray that you would establish your word, that we would not be ineffectual hearers only, um, that all of us would recognize and that you would show us those places where we are suppressing truth that we know in order that we might embrace sin in our lives. That there are areas that we are not surrendering to your Lordship um, willfully. Um, Lord, uh, cause us to see those areas. Grant us the grace to, to recognize what we're doing and help us to be more faithful and more obedient servants of you, Lord. That your kingdom would come in and through our lives, that your kingly rule would be plain to see in the lives we live um, on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.